Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stephen Grimison spent years at the top of journalism and then went to the other side. He was BBC Northern Ireland's political editor, but in 2001, he became Stormont's spin doctor-in-chief. The journalist who first waved a leaked copy of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement on our television screens. Anything new in the last 20 minutes? Well, this is it. This is the agreement. You have it in your hand. I have it in my hand. 67 pages. He then had the almost impossible job of selling the bad government to which it gave birth. Mr Trimble tried to hold a news conference as rival unionists opposed to the Good Friday Agreement called him a traitor. You're not credible, your own word. Then an astonishing running brawl went on in the background. I'm Sam McBride. I spoke to Stephen Grimison about the inner workings of the Stormont executive, the problems which plague the civil service to this day, and about his role in reporting that historic agreement. At the end of all of this, and looking back on it, I just have this emptiness in the pit of my stomach about all the opportunities that we had, and we missed every single one of them. Stephen, you've had a remarkable career, a long career, at the top of journalism, at the top of government, now retired, outside looking into both those things. Is there a moment or is there a job that you've done that really stands out when you look back on it now? I, I, I've just been incredibly lucky, uh, Sam, because I've generally always done a job I'd pretty much do for nothing. <laughs> and, and there are very few people can say that and I was very careful not to tell anybody who was my boss that that was the case or I might have ended up doing that. But I just have always been doing jobs that I've either found you know, utterly fascinating or you know, just, just was thrilled to be doing. Um, I mean, towards the end... Um, of my time in government, 15 years there, it became increasingly difficult as relationships in the political world became increasingly difficult. Well, those difficulties find their way right down the chain to everyone else in the system, uh, in the civil service, um, to the permanent secretaries, to the head of the service, and to press offices. So, you know, that sort of the tension that is there between the parties doesn't help the overall effort. And perhaps... The best year of um, the post-Good Friday Agreement period was probably um, the first year of the, that year of Paisley and McGuinness. Because I think 
to have a former leading terrorist, head of the IRA, army council member, together with the abominable no man, um, together chuckling about the place, clearly getting on, and I can absolutely assure you none of that was made up. They genuinely really got on. It, it just was such a, an easy period that. Um, now, that only was about a year or so, and it was pretty much not quite downhill after that, but it certainly had a lot of bumps in the road. You were pushing at an open door all the time, uh, seeing these two guys, these two leviathans of the troubles together, working together and being comfortable with each other, was probably that that image was the message, that, that those two guys being together was a signal to Northern Ireland that well, things are actually not too bad. If these guys can get on, well, we must be on a different road. And what, what was the impact of that trauma, seeing the, the troubles at close quarters and all its ugliness? What was the impact of that on how journalists then approached the agreement? So Martina Purdy um, at the Belfast Telegraph at the time in 1998, then your colleague at the BBC and um, now outside journalism, she has said that she thinks that most journalists were pro the agreement. I think there was a, a general worldly weariness with what had been going on. I would not have thought of myself as pro-agreement because I was frequently accused of trying to wreck it by telling the truth. I even took criticism from other journalists saying, you're trying to wreck this. I said, look, if whatever political process is out there cannot stand scrutiny, it isn't real and we pay a terrible price for it at the end. There's a responsibility of journalists to challenge and when you could see that you were, you know, there was a, degree, a great degree of you know, constructive ambiguity about the Good Friday Agreement and all those agreements. So the job of the journalists is to say, yeah, I know, well, what does it really mean? Journalists here didn't so much give it a fair wind as give it, or didn't give it a, a pro-agreement win as they gave it a fair wind. And that was certainly my experience of working with people like Alistair Campbell uh, in, uh, in, in, in Downing Street at the time. Take me back to what the BBC was like in the 1990s. Uh, lots of people these days and then project all sorts of criticisms onto the BBC. It's too left, it's too right, it's too unionist, it's too nationalist, whatever it might be. What was the reality of that organisation in positive and negative terms? The BBC is is not a monolith. Um, there's this, the BBC does this, the BBC does that. The BBC is a collection of people. I never really once ever had the heavy hand put on me to, you know, you need to start shaping that a bit this way or that way. I was left to my own devices. Um, and certainly in BBC Northern Ireland, most of the, a lot of the disputes within BBC sometimes were about things like, well, you know, how come 364 days a year we have to be like these really sort of, you know, hardy hard no tax who know a thing or two and you know are going to tell the truth. And then on the 12th of July, we've got to do all these pieces about how lovely their banners are. You know, I'm sorry, especially after Drum Cree 2. Brutal. I mean, it, you could make a case for it almost being, you know, a, a Protestant middle-class coup d'etat attempt. It got pretty, pretty gnarly. And then at the end of that week, we're all supposed to get out there and, you know, having been threatened with an inch of our lives all over the place, the whole place been held a ransom, and so all hell broke loose in the newsroom, 
and the controllers drowned down trying to calm things down. And I have to say, I was leading the charge a little bit and saying, you know, enough with this already. Why are we having to do this? I remember Pat Lockery, the controller, said, <laughs> you know, we just can't, can't just cancel the 12 um, coverage. And um, he said, you know, they could burn the place down on the way past. And I said, Pat, did it ever occur to you why they walk past this place? He said, it used to be, I'm told, that the BBC governors used to take the salute and that was the reason why they used to come past. <laughs> so, you know, it's, oh, yes, I know. But, but. So anyway, the, there was a compromise reached. The deal was that I would do before the live coverage started. They'd start the programme with myself and David McKittrick in the studio and um, with Noel Thompson asking the questions. And we'd do a hard-nosed, this is what's happened in the week. And I would do a film of about eight to ten minutes in. This is what really happened here with my own analysis of it. And um, then we'd hand over to, aren't their banners lovely? So um, about halfway through the film, David McKittrick says to me, this is terribly brave. And I sort of chill ran through me. And I said, what do you mean, David? He said, you just need to watch yourself after this for a little while. So because we, we produced the facts of the matter where people in Garvaki Road getting battened off the road for sitting on it and two kids in a summer seat were stopping a main road into cold rain and nobody said a word to them. You know, they're, they're, I worked with brilliant people uh, in uh, the BBC um, at all levels. I, I think to think of the BBC as this monolith that has an agenda, it isn't like that. I think sometimes lately it's got itself in bother for thinking too much. Just do the job. Going back further in time before you were there, you, you did an interview about 20 years ago with an academic, I'm not sure if you remember this, but uh, an academic at the University of Stirling, I think, where you said that the media in the past, and I think the first 40 years of Northern Ireland's history, had acted outrageously and disgracefully. And I think your overall argument was that they had been too, um, too weak in the face of the Union's government. They hadn't reported what was actually going on. And then whenever that did erupt, some people were shocked because they hadn't been told up until that point. What did you have in mind? I think you were talking about sections of the media in Northern Ireland, but what, what changed there in that period? I, I think there's a, almost like a pre-Troubles journalism and post-Troubles journalism. And there was a battle between my generation uh, of reporter and the ones who'd been there all along who could have, you know, reported this better. I mean, look, when you have major newspapers like the Belfast Telegraph with its own Orange Lodge. <laughs> um, there was a, you know, I, uh, the, the, the newsletter had similar stuff going on. Some of the levels of, let's say, just plain bigotry out of some people. Uh, and you're working with a guy, you know, who's, you're, you're reporting to a boss, a deputy editor or someone like that uh, in the local papers, who's a leading light in the Orange Order. I'm not sure that that's a good thing. And so therefore there was this sort of, you would hear the phrase a lot, it was a great wee country, if it only it hadn't been for all this trouble or for journalists starting it. And journalists got the blame for an awful lot of what happened because we put the spotlight on it. But if you look at some of the stuff that was going on, incredible. I mean, the Derry Commission or the Derry, there's an organiser, the Derry Trade Organisation came to Stormont and said we didn't want any more jobs for for uh, for for Derry because you want the, the Catholics getting uppity. I mean, these are they, this is a 
actual quotes from, from, from government documents. So there was no sense that there was this awful mess being stored up for the future and that nobody, you know, was looking at it. And because of the, the convention in, in Parliament, where you couldn't raise an issue that was under the purview of the Stormont uh, administration, that kept it quiet. And it was Jerry Fitz maiden speech where he went absolutely berserk about all of this and it was news to an awful lot of the people in the Commons. So shining the international light on this place um, was, you know, it was something that absolutely had happened. But there was a, a, a bit of a battle between the people who were there and kept it quiet versus people like me who were coming through saying, what's going on? When we get to the Good Friday Agreement talks, they had been going on for a very long time. And as a journalist, I think that it must have been very hard a point to make that gripping for viewers because it seemed to be the same issues that would be moving incrementally. Um, what, what, what was your perception of the, the level of interest from the public in what was happening in Stormont at that point? Well, there wasn't much interest from the public in terms of the years running up to that period. Um, <laughs> and there wasn't even that much interest among journalists sometimes. I mean, there used to be, a, the, the two governments would meet, um, uh, British and Irish governments would, would meet, and there'd be various bits and bobs. Uh, and then they'd issue a joint communique. And I remember um, Norman Stockton, who's then the UTV's political editor, we were in the old Admiralty building in... Uh, on the Mile in, in London, which was the NIO, NIO headquarters. And in the news conference afterwards, like he said to Patrick May, he began a quote from this communique saying, you know, um, well, why is why does this stuff never change? And May, he said, oh, no, we were moving things on. He said, I'm quoting from a communique from five years ago. <laughs> and it was word for word what was in the desk. <laughs> So, they're, they're, you know, and I think that what the governments were doing was just trying to keep the show on the road because in the background there were still the contacts that were going on. I mean, I've read hundreds of pages and have hundreds of pages of contacts between the British government and the, and the IRA in the period from 72 right through uh, to the end of the peace, the beginnings of the end of the peace process. So, you know, everyone knew there was another game going on and... And, and it was very closely held by the British and Irish governments at that time. But I think that they had to be seen to be doing something. Uh, and, and it had a horrible symmetry to it that the, the night before there was a British-Irish meeting, the IRA would have some major spectacular try to... So that they would command the headlines for that day and that all we'd be asking the governments about would be about the previous night's atrocity rather than the politics, which of the, which were pretty thin anyway. So if, if the Good Friday Agreement hadn't happened, is there any chance that things would gradually have petered out, that 9-11 would have happened, that terrorism would have become so unthinkable that, that it just would have burned itself out or become a much lesser thing? Or was it something that could just have gone on for decades at a lower level? I think inevitably it would have gone, because there's nothing to stop it. Um, I mean, I think that at that particular point, the provosts were pretty tired, but it had been a fair amount of interdiction, uh, to say the least, um, around, you know, um, uh, terrorist events being um, 
uh, filed. Um, so uh, they, they, they knew they couldn't win. Um, the, the British knew they couldn't win. The Irish just wanted an end to it. But, you know, then you have the wild card of loyalism and what it was doing and splits within it in terms of pro and anti-peace process. And there were some pretty horrific people hanging around that. And what they'd have been up to would have created a response. And you'd have had, you know, even if the IRA had, had held on to its ceasefire, the bits of it would have broken away. You, you need momentum. And I remember um, after the Good Friday Agreement, I remember Jerry Adams saying to me, look, you know, unless we can demonstrate every day that this is making a difference to our constituents on a day-to-day -day basis, this is going to be in trouble. And if you look at where we are now, you, you can't, in all honesty, say this is making a difference to my life, other than in a negative way. I, I think it's, it's very foolish to believe that this would have all just stopped. You know, Republicans wouldn't have stopped being Republicans and Loyalists wouldn't have stopped being Loyalists. And, and some excuse would have been found uh, to keep this awful, ugly little war going. You then went into Stormont to try to um, to do that job of the of the more day to day, more prosaic aspects of politics, trying to present the executive, the fledgling executive, in its in its best possible light. Was that a difficult job? <laughs> I thought I had a hard job when I was the political editor of the BBC, assailed on all sides. But it was nothing to what I ran into when I went into, went into Stormont. And to, to be honest, um, I should have been smarter than this because I kind of thought, well, we, we should be able to knock this into shape. And you could see, I could see strategically where you could move the place to. But then you run up against, you know, extremely people. Politicians try to present themselves to journalists as well, I'm your mate. You know, we're going to be all right. And there is that old thing about, you know, the relationship between journalists and politicians is that of a, a dog and a lamppost. And the question is, they're interchangeable. So which one's which? So you have, and, and you move from a position of working with these people to working for them. And the world changes because all of a sudden they're incredibly demanding, incredibly thin-skinned. And that's something I can say about pretty much all of them in the 15 years and the ones who came over in, in direct rule uh, from, from, from the rest of the UK who were only here part-time, but you know, they were still wanting things done for them. So I think that part of the problem was um, at the start was that there wasn't much of a relationship uh, between David Trimble and Seamus Mallon. And... Uh, and I remember one of the stories, one of the last stories I think I did before I left the Babe in 2001 was to show on a graphic, I put a big picture of Stormont out and there's David Trimble's office here and the farthest bit away, the farthest office right to the gable wall on the other side is Seamus Mallow. Uh, uh, so, you know, that didn't help. It also didn't help that the special advisors in the old office of First and Deputy First Minister were continually trying to get one up and carving it. And I, we warned them, look, I did already had a couple of years just before I got there. And I said, but you see each other's papers. So sure, the first thing you got to do is agree that you're not going to muck about with each other's papers and leak embarrassing stuff, because all it's going to do is make life harder. But, you know, it, it went on and, uh, you know, there are certain spads who should be ashamed of themselves. 
Um, there was, of course, always the difficulty where David Trimble is basically fighting for his life with the Ulster Unionist Council. And so I remember saying to, to, to Seamus at the time, I said, Seamus, look, David's going to be in all sorts of bother for quite a while. We need you to be Mr. Carpe Diem. You've got to show us the big picture. Keep our eyes on the prize. And in fairness to Seamus, he did that. But I mean, they, they, they were, the pair of them could be equally irascible. I remember we were opening the, um, the new Brussels office uh, for the executive. And it was a time to row over the, the euro. Uh, and, and I became suspicious of what David was up to. So having talked to one of his spads, he probably told me more than he should have. So I put the two of them in the room before we did the official opening. And I said, right, I need to talk to you too. And it was all this sort of, and we were oh, well, here comes the headmaster. I said, no, 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 no. I said, look, this is a big thing for us. And we have key messages to get out about the role and importance of this office for us and its importance of drawing us closer to Europe. Um, the levels of funding that we can, it really gives us a foot in the territory where we can, you know, we're not just looking for money, we're looking for technical help and all that sort of stuff. I said, so I want that to be the focus of what we're doing. And uh, I said, so David, what's the first thing you're going to say at the news conference? Well, I'm going to say that the Euro's destroying the German economy. <laughs> That's why we're having this meeting. You're not. <laughs> and he fell away laughing and then and Seamus laughed as well. The difference between that period and then obviously we go through five years of direct rule and then we come into the new period with the DUP and Sinn Féin and the difference was like day and night because they were very much, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say they were like sects, religious sects, but they tended, you know, they tend to be very enclosed and officials weren't given the in that certainly I would have had. So you had to be careful about when you needed your word um, with the first or deputy first minister. Um, there was certainly, Paisley was very closely man-marked by everybody around him because he was getting a bit frail. His family was minding him because of, of, of the, the illness he was going through. Sinn Féin were very much, they were, you had all these advisors wanting to make their mark. So they tended at, at various points, you could be feel a little bit frozen out. That's not to say that they didn't take advice. They absolutely did. But it became much more difficult to get through the, especially when things began to go wrong, um, because you were the, the real decisions you sometimes felt with Sinn Féin weren't being taken in the building where they should have been, that everything was being referred back to Connolly House and beyond. And did they come to blame the press office sometimes, which you controlled for the not necessarily always flattering press coverage of what was going on? I, I recall a senior DUP figure intimating that in a fairly public way at one point. Oh, it looked very public. And, and right in your face. And then I finally had enough of it at one point. And I said, um, we're not getting our message out. We are getting our message out. And our message is that we're crap at this. I said, until such times as we begin to take a few decisions, that's going to be the way. If you try and spin this, your spin will work. I spent a lot of time watching Labour, New Labour in action. And I learned a lot about what I was trying to do from what they'd done. Spin will work for about 18 months. And then all those promises that you make come home to roost. And all of a sudden the world's a different place. And I said, if you lie to journalists, and I said, I'm telling you now, I'm never going to lie to journalists. So 
There was this sense that uh, the DUP felt they could browbeat the media. Sinn Féin at times felt they could browbeat the media and were not one bit impressed when I said that is the craziest thing you can do because number one, what will happen is you'll really piss off someone like Sam McBride and he's going to spend the rest of his life getting you in the long grass. I said simple as, you know, I said that you, you if you pick a fight with the media here with the access they have and with the looseness of the behaviour of all of your MLAs and some of the people around people leaking stuff to the media. You know, I, this is crazy, but there was just no talking to them. And, and, you know, it got towards the end. I don't think we were doing any communicating at all. And I started to look for extra work and became, in addition to being director of comms, I think I was director of international relations and head of the executive secretariat. You could see it was all beginning to come apart at the seams. Was, was it also the case that as somebody on the inside of government, a point you looked out at what people like me were writing um, and thought you're being either too cynical or too sceptical, you don't understand the complexities of this, you don't understand what it's like to be in government. I mean, what's it, what's it like to be on the inside of government where people are facing completely impossible decisions? It, the, the difficulty, the thing that hobbled the executive and hobbled Stormont in a sense, is the checks and balances. So the very checks and balances, balances which were vital to getting the thing set up in the first place with petitions of concern. Now, that was ultimately hijacked to become something else entirely, which is anything it was meant to be, you know, where one community felt it was being discriminated against. But, of course, legally it took on a different, a different uh, 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 role. So the very checks and balances that we have slowed down decision-making. And there is no way that you could not slow down decision-making. So almost anything you did, you had to have a Section 75, you know, well, let's have a look at the, an, an environmental scan of it. That's, you know, an, an equality assessment, uh, a, a quality impact assessment, um, and all these other things. So the consultation period for legislation went on sometimes for, uh, appeared to go on forever notwithstanding that I mean they did they, they moved a lot more they moved more legislation at times than the Scottish Parliament did what was, what was the biggest success? I think if you uh, uh, if you look at what happened in terms of foreign direct investment for a period of about 10 to 15 years we had three times as much foreign direct investment uh, as anywhere else in the UK except London and the South East, which was always the big, the big generator of funding. So we did remarkably well on the economic front. Uh, we peddled it all away because any money that was brought in, <laughs> it went to the Treasury anyway, but would have come back to us in some form in terms of the block and everything else. But what we did was we had done all the stuff to get the jobs in, but had we changed the education system to, to take account of that? I mean, in the Republic, I, mean, I remember trying to get this, starting a bit of a debate about why is it that the Republic is, has this like conveyor belt of young graduates with computer degrees coming out. It's because they'd sat down 20 years earlier and said, what do we need coming out of our schools in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time? We should have been doing that. We didn't. Um, we lost the health service completely. Be mostly because of constituency itis and 
the lack of guts to take the decisions that would have closed various places. But because somebody would have stood up in um, the assembly um, and said, well, this, must, this is vital to this area. Northern Ireland isn't, is, is less than 2 million people. It isn't big enough to have a health service. We're going to need all the help we can putting this together. Most of what's going on in a lot of these places now where they can't recruit, they're not telling lies about that. You can't recruit. If you're a consultant in whatever it is, you need to have a certain number of procedures a year, maybe 400, 500. If you've got 200, you can't maintain your registration. It's political suicide to come to Northern Ireland for some doctors. So there needs to be this absolute, you know, complete Ben go and look at things. And was it that politicians didn't understand that or was it that they did understand that and they knew that they were doing the wrong thing, but they thought that if they did the right thing, they would lose their jobs? You can never lose your job for something to do with the health service here. Every election here is about the border. And that is one of the things that makes, that's the sort of horrible mix of stuff that ends up in administrative torpor around those big issues. I mean, education, 25% are kids coming out of school with no uh, qualifications. And that's not a big difference to when we started this in, 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 in 98. So, you know, there are a whole range of things that really need to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, people need to look at. And I mean, you know, there are people who could who could think the unthinkable. Martin McGuinness was one of the first people to bring in, you know, the the, the private uh, the public partnership yeah, stuff yeah. for for schools because he said, you know, oh, if we can't get the schools any other way, that's the way we'll get them. Peter Robinson, very pragmatic man at times, said, look, around the, frequently around the executive table would have said, look, nobody's going to get everything that they want here. In the end, this has to be a political deal. We need these things done and we need pretty much to put everybody's head in the same noose and then go out and you need to control your own parties to say, shut up, we're doing this. And that's sometimes, you know, the lack of party discipline in the old Ulster Unionist Party was the reason why they went to the wall. Now you're seeing incredible lack. In fact, it's not a lack of party discipline in the DUP at the moment. There isn't any. There isn't anyone, any MP can get up and say whatever he wants about the protocol, regardless of what the leader has said. So, I mean, you know, in that sense, it is ironic to see Jeffrey Donaldson in the role of David Trimble. So, there, I had this horrible, at the end of all of this, and looking back on it, I just have this emptiness in the pit of my stomach about all the opportunities that we had to fix this. And we missed every single one of them. We could have had an extra 20 billion uh, into the system over the last 15 or 20 years, comfortably. Don't tell me that wouldn't have made a difference. If we had, for instance, I was involved in very, very um, detailed work that we were doing in relation to the bringing of water charging here. Um, it would have meant 30 quid a month. To, to most families, but you could have put in mitigations for who could, would and wouldn't have, have seen it. That would have given us about three hundred million pounds a year. The difficult, the thing that had happened, we, um, the original intention was for um, the last secretary of state, um, Peter Hayen, to bring in water charging. So that then the parties could go. Perfidious Albion has done for us again. But by the way, while well, they brought him, can't get rid of it. 
that extra 300 million would have been genuinely additional because the deal that we did way back in 2002, 3, 4, and the two people I worked with, head of water in the Department for Infrastructure, David Sterling, and the budget director, Andrew McCormick, the three of us were <laughs> mooching about trying to put all this together. I had got the media in exactly the right spot about why this was needed. We were also going to increase rates. Compare us to Liverpool, which has pretty much got a lot of our problem, you know, in certain parts of the may have been city of culture, but it has genuine, it was an objective one status area for as long as we were in European funding terms. Average house in Liverpool is paying two to two and a half thousand pounds a year in rates. Average house here about a thousand. And they're paying water on top of it. So you get into arguments about sponsors very quickly. Uh, and people will turn around and say, well, why didn't the civil service do this and this and why didn't the civil service do that? In the end, the only person who can be the boss of a department is a minister. And we had that legal advice time after time and running back to the early 2000s. And the fact that we've only been up about 40 or 50% of the time actually working is that. The number one requirement to, to the primary building block to getting this place back together again is a minimum three-year budget, rolling budget. It's only if you're looking at that sort of time frame, and even better than that would be five, well, that's never going to happen because of the way the Treasury works. We also, uh, you know, the Treasury hates us because we've squandered everything. With, as I say it, they've squa we've squandered everything they've ever given us. You then left Stormont in September 2016, about three months before RHI erupted with that BBC Spotlight programme. Did you watch the programme? I did indeed. Um, I think, um, well, I was astounded, uh, to say the least. I mean, I we all knew something was going on in there, but it was been very, very closely held. And I did get, I'd been quietly told that when this breaks, all hell will break loose. And I expected the politicians would be at the heart of it, but they weren't. It was bad advice from officials. Officials almost very very close to lying to ministers about what was going on, particularly with the type of funding that there was for us. Of course, the politicians then made a hems of it because all of a sudden it's, I'm not going to get the blame for this, and there was an awful lot of devil take the hindmost. And some of the behaviour of some of the spads, I was kind of delighted to see that being aired because that's, that was my experience of them as well. Of a few, not, not very many. It just, it damaged so much of the work that successive heads of the service had tried to do about trying to move the civil service home, that they were still thinking in silos. Every department has its own culture and not many people liked uh, the economy department because they were seen as, you know, you know, they regarded themselves as superior because, you know, we're bringing the jobs in and we're great and we're up for it and we're brilliant, but actually they really weren't. Um, and it just, it was so disappointing. And it was so disappointing as well to see some decent people who had happened to getting blamed and it had more happened to them than it being their fault. Um, so nobody covered themselves in glory. It was a very bad uh, moment for, for the civil service and allowed all those uh, who'd been you know, attributing um, it, it became a conspiracy rather than just what it was, which was a small group of overworked officials taking shortcuts. 
How does this happen on the inside? Because to lots of people on the outside, people like me who follow it closely, to the person in the street who doesn't follow it closely but sees little snippets, they think that it just is incredibly obvious. If you behave in that way in the private sector, you're gone. You don't hang around for years while they investigate yep. it and then decide to do nothing. You're out and that's it. So how does it actually happen? Is it weakness? Is it people who are afraid? Is it cronyism? I mean, what I, I'm, I'm not talking about the, the specifics of this case because you weren't there, you don't know, but no. in general terms, what do you think goes on within the surface too? I think that there are a number of things that contribute to this. Um, first off, a lot of these guys in all the departments, they all know each other very well, have come up through the system together. So there's a bit of a friendship there. Um, and it's like, you know, in... In the private world, private industry, you tend to move about a bit more. Um, one of the great um, things that was attempted at one point in the civil service back about 2000, late 2000s, was that people shouldn't be allowed to apply for senior jobs unless they'd worked for at least two or three departments. But then you end up with a place like agriculture, the People's Independent Republic of Agriculture, where, well, this is very specific stuff and can't just bring anybody in from anywhere. So you create that silo of how they think of what they're doing. So that doesn't help. You then have um, uh, disciplinary procedures which can take forever to run through. Um, they shouldn't. Is that lawyers being overly cautious? It's not lawyers. It's a, This is about, well, how do we get this together? Is this going to be a formal complaint? Once things become formal, then lawyers, departmental solicitor's office, all that sort of stuff uh, uh, happens. So, and the fact that these people know each other so well, um, and I'm not saying it's a, a chumminess, but they're, they're, I have, you, and also, well, I can't believe he did that. Uh, especially when the person says, I didn't do that. Uh, and how long has that other person been here? Oh, don't know them really. And do you want to really go out in a limb like this when the guy that you're going to take, he could take you back and he could he could get his own lawyers on the, on the game. And it's just the slowness, you know, the, 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 the turning the oil tanker of a major government department is something that doesn't happen very quickly. And sometimes it just comes down to the guts in the permanent secretary. And over the years... I've had permanent secretaries refer things to me to deal with the minister that they should be doing, but they're wanting to protect their relationship with the minister. You know, I had a minister once demanded to leak a paper from the executive and I pointed out to him, look, um, we took a decision as the executive in September 2001-2 that the all government papers, all executive papers and the agenda um, is secret uh, and he said yeah I know but I still want to get this out you're not mine I just put it out anyway I said no you won't and he didn't speak to me for about six months Are you hopeful about the future? Not at the moment I'm really quite worried that um, it will all go to hell in the handcart for quite a while if the DUP don't get back into government soon there'll be nothing to get back into and then we're into a whole renegotiation. I remember sitting on the day of Good Friday in 1998, the BBC had built a tree house so they could overlook the whole thing for the studios. And I was sitting with Dennis Murray, we're having a quick break for about 10 minutes, a cup of tea. And I remember Dennis leaned over to me and he said, you know, it's never, ever gonna get better for us than this, ever. And I said, you know, Dennis, you're right. 
But I have a worry. Ellie said, what? I said, look, I worry that in 25 years' time, a bunch of students are going to be coming and talking to you and me, asking what it was like the last time they tried this. And I have this awful worry that everybody wanted the Good Friday Agreement to work because it would stop people dying. Well, people have stopped dying. And everybody wanted the Good Friday Agreement, or many people wanted the Good Friday Agreement to work because it would give us a bit of a new start. And you'd put up with all the nonsense, provided we're getting on with the job around this place. That's a very low bar. 25 years on, I think the public are raising that bar. I don't want you in there unless you're going to get me my medical appointments, that you're going to find me a dentist, that you're going to make sure that my kid comes out of school with the skills he needs, that he or she needs to make a, to have an actual, a proper stake. So having the stake that people wanted to have in this country post Good Friday Agreement is not the stake that they want to have in this country now. Just sort of bumping along the bottom isn't good enough. People want to see a change and they want to see people working for them to make a, a, a difference to their, their lives on a day-to-day basis. And that isn't happening. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Sam McBride and Kieran Dunbar. Sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from AP, UTV and the BBC. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.